and welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief of the Security Ledger. On this week's podcast, it was a tough week for Moscow-based security software firm Kaspersky Lab, which was the subject of a Wall Street Journal article that alleged a company's antivirus software was used by Russian intelligence agents to steal classified hacking tools from the NSA. We're going to talk with former NSA analyst and CEO of Immunity, Inc., Dave Itell, about what may be behind the Wall Street Journal story. Also, we look at the Trump administration Justice Department's take on strong encryption and talk to cryptographer, author, and information security superhero Bruce Schneier about whether anything has changed when it comes to the government's affinity for backdoors and strong encryption algorithms. Finally... A hearing on Capitol Hill last week tackled the thorny problem of securing the Internet of Things. We're going to talk with one of the experts who testified at that hearing, Josh Corman of the firm PTC. Josh tells us about what might lie ahead as the government attempts to tame the Internet of Things. But first, the Moscow-based antivirus firm Kaspersky Lab was once the darling of that country's small tech sector, a Russian firm that was able to compete with Western technology giants like McAfee and Symantec on an even footing. These days, however, Kaspersky's name is more often linked with tales of Russian spying and the government of Vladimir Putin. Dave Itell of the firm Immunity, Inc. says whether or not the company's executive leadership is aware of them, there are plenty of reasons to worry about Kaspersky's links to Russian intelligence agencies. Joining us now in the Security Ledger podcast, we have Dave Itell, who is the CEO of Immunity, Inc. Dave, welcome to Security Ledger podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you. There's been so much going on with regard to Kaspersky Lab. A lot of questions that were floating in the air for many years are suddenly being asked out loud. And the thing that really has moved the story forward is this story that came out in a Wall Street Journal that seemed to connect the dots between Kaspersky and Russian intelligence, uh, saying that their software may have played a role in the theft of some offensive cyber tools from an NSA contractor. What What are your thoughts on that report? And what might we be talking about? How might this have gone down? I mean, my thoughts, like any, like any of these things, what you see the community reacting to is this desire to believe Kaspersky is innocent. And, you know, we have a, a genuine and I think very healthy suspicion of anything coming from the government, especially anything that has been marked anonymous sources and is getting fed out through a friendly newspaper. But it's a probable reality that Kaspersky is dirty. And that may not mean Eugene himself is dirty. It may just mean that his organization has been penetrated by the Russians to a point where they use his product as a signals intelligence engine. And it looks like that's what they got caught doing. And I think it's you know, there's a lot of noise from Eugene over Twitter where he's saying, hey, if we've been penetrated, let us know. We're happy to help look into it. And I just don't think that matters from a national security perspective and even from a commercial perspective. I think anyone smart and, you know, Immunity's clients are all big financials. Uh, so they're ripping out not just Kaspersky, but anything that, that looks like Kaspersky uh, for, you know, what they would essentially consider a capital crime in the market. Uh, so, I mean, the the claim, which is a little vague, as all all 
you know, top secret leaks are, is that a NSA employee took data home. That data was discovered by Kaspersky's agent and then pulled onto Kaspersky's cloud, and then it got to the Russian government. And I think the question Eugene refuses to answer on Twitter is, even if everything, every other part of that was normal, the part where it goes to the Russian government is not normal. That is not a thing that would normally happen. And you know, Eugene's trying to say that it's, you know, it was probably just Trojans and whatnot that he already has signatures for. I think that's very unlikely as an explanation. You know, when we talk about documents being taken, very rarely do documents trigger any kind of real signatures. What probably happened was they they knew that he was in Colombia because they knew what the ISP was. And the Russians specifically targeted people in Colombia who they possibly knew worked for the NSA and had their product on their laptops. And they got a directory listing, and then they looked through the directory listing, and they picked up the files they thought were interesting. And then when those files were interesting, they picked up the rest of them. So I think they're dirty. I don't think it's that complex. But, you know, we want to believe. I get it. We're all Mulder. And we want to, you know, he says he's innocent. You know, like, that's cool. <laughs> wow. You really dated yourself with that X-Files reference. <laughs> X-Files is back. What are you talking about? It's new. They've got a new one. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I forgot about that. This gets at the crux of the Kaspersky lab. And, and for um, you know, purposes of disclosure, obviously, uh, I, I was an employee at Kaspersky Labs ThreatPost for two years, from 2010 to 2012. So, well, let's um, talk about ThreatPost and let's talk about SAS. Because if they're dirty, the most dangerous thing you can do is browse ThreatPost and go to SAS. And... I, we just don't want to believe that, but it could very well be true. It's what I would build if I was the Russians. Right. So SAS is the Security Analyst Summit. It is a uh, it is a very well attended, high profile uh, security summit that happens at various yeah. nice resorts around the world. You're telling me that doesn't come with an FSB technical team? <laughs> really? Like it's impossible. Well, uh, that we're that gullible. Yeah. But yet. I see it on the. Oh wow, yeah. Sound. Let's go to Cancun. All expenses paid. Yay. All right. Anyway. Yeah, that is how it worked. Which is Kaspersky generally would pay for folks to travel there. Not only employees, but the speakers and uh, many, many of the guests. (laughs) Many of the guests. Name (laughs) another conference that pays for guests. Look, these people are dirty. Yeah. It's it's so (laughs) obvious. Well, I never saw an FSB technical team there, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> and I I went into many different rooms. Uh, yep. No. Yeah. But the crux of the argument from Kaspersky is that, you know, we are happy to submit our uh, antivirus engine uh, source code for analysis. We're happy to have anybody look at it. But what you're saying is the there doesn't need to be anything in the end product, the product that gets installed for, as you say, for the company to be have been compromised or to be, as you say, dirty. I, I think we all know that. I think we know there's nothing you can show technically that would clear their name. And that's an unfortunate reality of their business and all businesses. I mean, the same thing's true of every business in America. Um, and I, 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 you know, as much as I think they're probably on the wrong end of this argument, uh, I, I, you have to point out the U.S. government has not said, look, we would never ask a U.S. company to do something similar, right? right? Like, 
And that's it's not. And the funny thing is, we all want to talk about vulnerability equities, but this is the real equity. This is the business killing equity. Is right. whether or not you're going to ask a company to help you d- drive your signals intelligence, and in some cases, your human intelligence. Right. And it's either it's either on the table or not. And what we're saying now is that if you get caught, we're going to ban you. But is it an assumption of of capability that we want everyone to have? Like, are we driving toward balkanization, as I think you've mentioned in the past on your podcast, or do we not want that? And we we never made a top-level decision, so we're sort of just floating out there without a rudder, which is fine. But, I mean, we're not saying that they are evil. We're saying you've, you've gotten caught. Right. And to play devil's advocate, I mean, that is the question, which is do Symantec and McAfee uh, do this on behalf of the U.S. government? Does Trend Micro do it on behalf of the Japanese government? There are Chinese-based antivirus companies. Um, So is this just the state of play in, you know, you've got companies that are in essence selling, you know, kernel mode rootkits called antivirus engines. Are all of them uh, compromised in this way? Even if the company's American, people who work there aren't all Americans, right? Like, that's not how this yeah, industry right. works. There's no, no such thing as an American antivirus. I mean, there's there's top Chinese people who used to work for their signals intelligence arm working at some of the antivirus companies I know. Sure. And we're, we're okay with it, right? Like, okay, let's install McAfee and Symantec. Yeah. So at what point are they so important to your national security that you have to vet their employees, right? Like, or is the rule, if we catch you, using our human and signals intelligence, then we ban you. And like, if you knowingly did something bad, you get banned. And I, I just think we could use some clarity. I mean, everyone in the policy argument is always calling for clarity, and there's never any clarity. Um, but these are tough questions. And we're seeing this with not only the, you know, we're, we're seeing this and, and the willingness to use software as a, uh, attack vector, obviously with the C cleaner uh, attacks and the NotPetya uh, attacks using MeDocs. Um, is this just, are those just, you know, the, the, the sort of tip of the iceberg of a much bigger question around software supply chain and the integrity of all of the, you know, third-party applications you might be using within your organization? Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's just the beginning of where we think government should go. I mean, you know, all these questions we don't have answers to. I feel like this was where the Obama administration had a window and they dropped the ball. And to its credit, the Trump administration is much, much better at cyber policy than the Obama administration. Uh, but they haven't been around for too long. And this was, this, the window might have closed. And that's kind of a sad fact. So where does this go now? You know, obviously, you've got Best Buy and Office Depot uh, pulling Kaspersky off their shelves in the U.S. Office Depot, uh, as I reported yesterday, uh, actually offering to remove Kaspersky's product for free and install McAfee in its place. You know, this cannot be good for the top or bottom line at Kaspersky Lab. Where does this all lead? Is is the Are we going to look back on the sort of last 10 or 15 years as a sort of halcyon time where there was this idea of, well, we're all just... You you know, consumers in a big global marketplace for technology and talent, the, the walls are going to go up. And, you know, if you're an American, you work for American companies. If you're Russian, you work for Russian companies serving Russian customers. Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's always existed to some extent. And, you know, I think a big question is, I'm, I'm carefully keeping an eye on what the Brits do. 
Because the Brits have always been halfway in a sense, right? Like even with Huawei, they're like, yeah, it's, we're going to ban them here, but we'll allow Huawei to build parts of our internet. I mean, the Australians did the same thing. I think the, the Huawei built the Australian uh, giant cable modem network or whatever it is. So it's, I mean, there are some, some tells, I would like to say, some international tells to see what other organizations who've probably been read in on the actual intelligence, uh, I want to see what they do. And I don't know how much of that's a matter of their national policy, how much of it's just random chance that someone doesn't trust someone else, and how much of that is, is the intelligence itself being damning. So, you know, I mean, the Germans are another, I, I you know, I asked the Germans the other day, I'm like, hey, are you guys pulling this out? And they're like, no, not really. But, I mean, you know, the Germans are very suspicious of American intelligence, and maybe they don't believe that American intelligence has caught Kaspersky doing something dirty. Uh, and, and they're also quite close to the Russians. I think people are a little bit not aware of how close the German economy is to the Russian economy and, and the rest of the, the situation there. Um, but I mean, if you start, if you see the German retailers pull Kaspersky, then you know that they've been read in and someone's talked to someone and that company is dead. And then we're in your world, your little dystopian world. You advise companies on their security. Uh, this type of stuff must be terrifying to you if you work at a you know sophisticated organization with valuable intellectual property, uh, because antivirus obviously is one of the pillars of any corporation's you know IT security program. What what would your advice be? I mean, what can you really do about this type of a threat? I have to be honest, this is one of the reasons we do almost all of our business in the big financials and the people who supply the big financials. I mean, they they have a healthy paranoia that they back up with money. So, you know, I mean, I don't I don't think this is something that's an extreme for them in terms of their threat model. I mean, to be fair, when I go into a lot of the big financials, they view every government, our own included, as first-rate threats, and they have been designing and building systems to counteract that. The PRISM report that came out a while back was very heavily in their thing. You know, Governments do a lot of work surveilling big financials, and they've all started realizing that even internally, they need a security program that can take on that kind of threat. And some of them have the budget to do it, and some of them don't, but they still try, which is fine. Uh, they have so many problems in security that very little of, you know, very little of their CISOs are getting sleep at night, which is why I'm not a CISO for a giant financial. But for other organizations, you know, some of them are so far behind the eight ball that this isn't going to ring their bell. You know what I mean? Like, this may not rise to their level of urgency. It may just be an interesting, you know, report that they read about that they can't quite handle yet. So uh, you're going to be going to the Security Analyst Summit this year? I've never been. Um, and I have a feeling after this podcast, my invitation will be revoked. <laughs> Look, and I actually feel really bad for for all of the Kaspersky engineers and you know, even for Eugene himself, if this turns out to be something that's been a little bit overblown, uh, which I don't believe it is. But you know, 99.99% of the Kaspersky employees probably knew nothing about this and are as white hat as white hat gets. Um, it's, you know, and it's a sad fact of life that any organization can be destroyed by, uh, a strategic mistake that puts you in bed with one or another government. And that's just something I think every, every company has learned and it's very hard to clear your name. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, the so. the analogy I like to make, though, is that when you're talking about places like uh, Russia or China or Iran, um, you know, it's it's probably not that useful to make comparisons to the United States or Great Britain or Germany, you know, that that executives in those countries, you know, particularly Russia, really don't have a choice about whether to cooperate with the government if the government comes and asks them to do something. Because if they say no, then they could be, you know, yanked out of their bed in the middle of the night and thrown in jail and have their company taken away from them and given to somebody else, you know. And it's just we've seen it happen. And my guess is that weighs heavily on the mind of executives in those company in those countries. I, you know, I I think it's a spectrum. I would hardly like to say the United States is, you know, a bastion of perfect, uh, you know, governance. But certainly, you know, certainly we we at sometimes are confused about our own rules, even though we do follow them. Um, but we do make an attempt to follow rules which I think does set us apart a little bit. And, uh, you know, Kaspersky will claim that they're headquartered in the UK, um, at least corporately. I don't know what the word, the adverb for that is or whatever it is. Uh, <laughs> we'll but, take corporately. Okay. You know, like, <laughs> they would claim that every, they, they, they have resisted such pressures if there were any, and that, you know, obviously the Russian government would not do this to their shining star. And, you know, that's, that's their argument. I just don't know if it holds any water, like you say. Any, any of these issues where we, we say this is against the norms of behavior, therefore you're getting either sanctioned or we're going to you know, publicly advise no one uses your stuff. I think we need to make sure that we're taking a step back and saying, what is it we do we should be restricting? Mm-hmm. Are there barriers? Like, Should we say, look, we do this too, but only to two people a year and only in the cases of nuclear, biological, or chemical weaponry or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the rules of the road are. Or should we just simply say we do have rules for how we do this and we do follow them? Um, maybe that's a good first step. So I don't know. that These are super tough issues. I think, you know, I, I don't mean to demonize what Kaspersky did. But I also I don't think we should be in the dark about messages that we are being sent. And I feel like a lot of people are definitely, you know, trying to, you know, put their head in the sand on what these articles mean. Right. And kind of making false equivalences or, um, you know, the sort of, well, everybody does it uh, argument. Yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. just not confusing what the government's accusing Kaspersky of, unless you're reading his Twitter. Right. Like, like it seems pretty clear to me. They're saying you're a signals intelligence organization, and we don't yes. like that, right? Like, yeah, it's not it's not that complex. It's not we don't think someone exploited your product. No, we think they used your product as it was intended. Right, right, and and these these rumors have been or these these kind of rumblings have been happening have been going on for quite a while, and and the. You know, the challenge back was, you know, where's the proof or what are the you know, what are you talking about? You know, this is all very vague. You know, the the journal story finally kind of connected the dots as to what they were talking about. And and obviously there's been now pushback to the journal story. But um, but, yeah, it's this is not new. These these uh, warnings or rumblings have certainly been going on for many years. And you don't get proof in this world. You're supposed to have trust. And we apparently don't have that either. Yes. So that's why it feels so bad, as I guess where I come from. Yeah. Dave, I tell 
CEO of Immunity, Inc. Thank you so much for coming on the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you so much. And next, when Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein spoke at the Cambridge Cyber Forum in Boston last week, it was to warn about the threats posed by dark markets as well as going dark or what Rosenstein or what Rosenstein called warrant proof encryption. Bruce Schneier of Harvard University's Berkman Klein Center for the Internet and Society said that Rosenstein's talking points are more or less unchanged from those of his predecessors, another salvo in trench warfare between the technology industry and law enforcement over the issue of data encryption. With us now in the Security Ledger studio, we have Bruce Schneier, who is the chief technology officer at IBM Resilient and a fellow at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. Bruce, welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to have you. We were both at an event earlier this week here in Boston. We saw uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein speak on the issue of cybersecurity. And, uh, you know, it's a new administration. He's new in the job. Did we hear anything new? from Washington, D.C. and law enforcement on the issue of encryption and the law enforcement community's desire to get behind strong encryption and be able to uh, decipher what is being encrypted? I don't think we did. It really felt like a recycled speech. There was not a lot new in it. It wasn't delivered with a lot of passion. I think he just pulled the speech to give on cybersecurity and gave it. I'm not sure it even represented any kind of policy movement. He just was there and spoke. We heard this term warrant-proof encryption. I don't know if that's a new label that they're using to try and frame it better, but the idea seems to be encryption is great, except when we want access to the data, in which case we need to get it. But um, that's not possible, is it? So they want encryption that works, except when they like it not to work. And the mechanism they propose is is a warrant, right? So they want encryption that works well, unless there's a certain piece of paper that's sitting nearby, in which case it should not work. And now, now, mathematically, of course, this is ridiculous. The math either works or it doesn't. But I think warrant proof is, is kind of a scare word, the idea that this encryption thwarts warrant. Now, again, this is this is not new. We've heard this for, for decades, really, you know, the notion that you can thwart a warrant. And and whenever someone talks about that being unprecedented or never happened before, I always think about things like you know, burning papers in a fire or having a conversation where no one else can hear. I mean, these are also warrant-proof activities, as are so many other things. But it is a scare word, and, 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 and it gets people worried, and maybe they want less encryption, and you know, I think that's a real harmful. Uh, Whitey Bulger, the famous gangster, used to have his conversations on the beach down in South Boston, right, uh, where the... There was the sound of the ocean and nobody around to listen. And, and those days are over. The uh, t- technology of microphones, of, of bugs, of drones, all of these things have made it much, much harder to have these sorts of conversations. So when the FBI talks about going dark and the inability to collect evidence, they're really ignoring <clears throat> all their abilities to collect evidence and, and focusing on this one thing, which, you know, as we know, in, in this era of Russians and others trying to tap our communications is very essential. And, you know, the FBI can't get encryption that protects them without encryption. It also thwarts them. That's just the way the math works. Okay, so if we're hearing more or less the same line from the Department of Justice and the FBI vis-a-vis strong encryption, have and you follow this space very closely, 
Are there other things that have changed in terms of the the back and forth between the technology industry and lawmakers regarding this issue? In other words, has the needle moved at all on this issue of whether to require backdoors in strong encryption products? It hasn't. I mean, it hasn't moved for a couple of decades. It's all been rhetoric and it would be nice if the uh, companies would work with us kind of talk. But, you know, no serious legislation. You know, I don't think there will be. I mean, you know, uh, for one, Congress is not going to pass something this difficult and controversial. And it's just, it's just hard to do. You know, for all the talk, it actually is hard to get this right, to get an encryption system that is made deliberately weak for law enforcement and then doesn't also make it deliberately weak for other countries' law enforcement. So, you know, I, I really don't want the government of Russia to be using the same sorts of backdoors that that we add, and, and no one else does either. Right. Now, at the same time, most communication is available. We talk uh, on Gmail. We talk via you know different systems where records are kept. Metadata is kept. You know, one of the reasons I think the NSA really isn't backing the FBI is because you know the NSA knows the value of metadata, and they, they actually also know the value of strong encryption. So this seems to be another one of those um, intractable uh, policy debates. You know, if Bruce Schneier suddenly became uh, not just president, but actually emperor, how would you resolve this dispute? What would your solution be? I don't have to resolve it. It's, it's math. And, and there are one of two choices. Either we make encryption weak so that people can break it, including the FBI and people we don't want to break it, or we make encryption strong so that nobody can. So that's the policy argument. You know, I mean, I don't want to be emperor. I don't want to make the policy argument. But as a technologist, I want to say that those are your only options. You don't get an option where the FBI can break encryption, but organized crime can't. Right? That's just not available. That's just not technologically available. So you know, if I was in charge, I want that policy discussion to happen. I mean, my hope is we'll choose strong encryption over surveillance. But that is a policy discussion. Are there laws that need you talk about the, the value of metadata being so much more powerful, really, as a law enforcement or an investigative tool than uh, just, you know, breaking encryption and looking at, you know, text or voice data or whatever it is. Are there needs for laws to better protect and regulate that type of metadata than what we have on the books right now? Uh, I mean, it's certainly possible. I mean, right now, in the United States, at least, we pretty much accept uh, ubiquitous corporate surveillance. I mean, Facebook is the largest surveillance organization on the planet, and we are happy to give them unfettered access and no rules about use to our data. I would like to see similar controls that we have on governments to to be imposed on corporations. I don't think we can... uh, live long-term with this kind of rampant corporate power. That's a complicated discussion. Right? Surveillance capitalism is the business model of the Internet, and reining that in would require a lot of changes. But it is something we probably should start talking about. 
Our friends over in the European Union have addressed this issue uh, in some ways with the um, general data privacy rule, GDPR. That's due to take effect in a few short months uh, with some stiff penalties and also um, some stiff protections for consumer privacy around data. Um, Do you think that will uh, tilt the scales at all in the United States? I hope it does. Europe really is a regulatory powerhouse here, and we're living in a world, especially in software, where companies will build once and field everywhere around the the planet. So strong European protections will end up protecting everybody else. And as you said, it's not come into force yet, so a lot of it depends on how it's enforced. You know, recently Europe has been very strong in, in trying to rein in what they feel is excessive corporate behavior. So I have, I have a lot of optimism that GDPR will help, but the devil's in the details. Diseases are complicated, and we need to, need to see how it's going to be enforced. Bruce Schneier, Chief Technology Officer at IBM Resilient and Fellow at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Mm, thanks for having me. And finally, Congress is closer than ever to passing comprehensive legislation to secure the Internet of Things. In a hearing last week, Josh Corman of the firm PTC and I Am the Cavalry testified about the need for both better labeling of IoT products and more accountability for connected device manufacturers. He says that the appetite for change amongst lawmakers is strong and it's being driven in part by exasperation over disruptions like the Mirai botnet attacks and the Equifax data IoT devices collectively took out the Internet for half a day. The private sector has uh, been loath to, and the government, have been loath to regulate software or IoT for the last 30 years since that their 25 machine killed people because we don't want to stifle innovation, hurt the economy, or you know, hamstring the U.S. and the international market. Uh, but what Mirai kind of rubbed in their faces was that a failure to regulate IoT could stifle innovation and hurt the economy, in fact, did. It took out Netflix and Spotify and CNN and a whole bunch of others for half a day. And that botnet was only 20% of the total botnet, and the, the nodes participating were only about 20% of their total attack capacity. And as you know, I used to work at Akamai. The math just doesn't scale to handle botnets of this size. So around that time, Senator Warner of Virginia started asking a lot of questions and realized that maybe it's time for some political will because a choice not to regulate is still a choice, a regulatory choice. And people were getting kind of spooked that this is only going to get worse as we get more IoT. Um, so did a bunch of education right up front. Uh, they ended up talking to Jonathan Zittrin and some others in, in industry and private sector as well. And on August 1st, just when we were coming back from DEF CON this year, Senator Warner's bill finally dropped, and it was uh, federal procurement standards for IoT for federal agencies. It says that any connected technology sold to the federal government must, number one, uh, be free of known vulnerabilities, which you and I know is probably impossible. But when there are vulnerabilities, you should disclose them. Number two, you must be patchable because future vulnerabilities are inevitable. Number three, you should avoid fixed credentials, Mariah took advantage of. Number four, you should use standards-based protocols in crypto. So you're not doing cutesy things or rolling your own, or you should at least disclose when you're using something non-standard. Uh, number five, you should have a coordinated vulnerability disclosure program, inviting researchers acting in good faith to report issues to you so that you can start your vulnerability handling routine, and they will receive safe harbor from CFA and DMCA based on some ruling from MPPD 
And uh, lastly, because some devices can't or won't meet these standards, uh, there's a waiver process, and NIST was going to come up with some alternative compensating controls for the, the criteria that can't be met. And uh, that bill got a hearing on the House side from Chairman Hurd and Ranking Member Kelly of Illinois. Ranking Member Kelly has a draft discussion bill, and I think this was them building up their confidence on whether or not to introduce this. So a bipartisan bill in the Senate and a fairly comparable bipartisan bill may be imminent in the House. Uh, this is pretty rare. It is, you know, and, and obviously the current administration and the mood in D.C. is uh, profoundly anti-regulatory. Um, do you think it's possible that this could be an area where actually we do see the federal government stepping in with some efforts to regulate this space? Well, uh, two, two answers to that, I guess. One is that, um, you know, there's pretty broad and critical mass forming around some of these concepts. Uh, like here's two lines from the executive order on cybersecurity, right? Right from the White House and Tom Bossert. It says for too long, the federal government has for too long accepted antiquated and difficult to defend IT. Number two, known but unmitigated vulnerabilities are among the highest cybersecurity risks faced by executive department agencies. So number, you know, you'll see similar language in our Congressional Task Force for Healthcare Cybersecurity in response to the CISA Act of 20, 2015. Uh, similar language in the Presidential and Commission on Enhancing National Cybersecurity, December of 2016. Commerce Department's been driving adoption and best practices for both coordinated vulnerability disclosure and labeling for patching and upgradability of the Internet of Things. DHS put out uh, six strategic principles for securing IoT. FDA has been doing a lot with their pre- and post-market guidance. FTCs start with security. There's a lot of consistent and common language here is answer number one. So I think when you can settle on some pretty no-brainer type hygiene things, cyber hygiene, not kitten killing zero days from China or something, um, not nation state attacks, but the stopping stupid sort of idea. Um, that's point number one. And point number two is this, you know, is explicitly not regulation. This is saying as a buyer in a free market, we're going to buy stuff that's less likely to potentially be the next cause of an OPM breach or a listening device in each congressional office from some sort of, you know, smart gadget. And one of the things I warned is, of, you know, just coming out of the, the Atlantic Council and a policy think tank is that the easiest solutions to the next widespread Mirai botnet um, play right into the hands of some of our adversaries. Um, you might recall when I was researching Anonymous, a couple countries, including China, Russia, Egypt, UAE, and some others were trying to break up the governance model of the internet from a free, open, multi-stakeholder, ungoverned model to a nation-state-centric, UN-governed model where it was a sovereign play. One of the easiest fixes for this, net, if this happens again, is geo-IP filtering, um, it's um, nation-state sovereignty, it's deep packet inspection at edges and gateways and carriers, which gets into privacy issues and net neutrality issues. It's bricking. It's actually a really, really soft-sounding but dangerous and insidious proposal out of China called um, DOA, which Bo Woods likes to joke should be DOA, but it's like device object artifact or something like that attribute. And it's a, a way to uniquely track and identify and scrutinize devices beyond a MAC address. And, you know, my warning to them is if the U.S. doesn't act boldly um, in cooperation with our allies, since this is a global market, that we will end up inheriting someone else's model and that those other models may not be in our interest and likely won't be 
because if you're in a lot of pain and you can't shut down you know, mass attacks like Mirai, the quick, dirty, cheap fixes are pretty ugly ones, including the idea of bricking, which a lot of our friends in the mm-hmm. white hat or gray hat community think, well, we should just brick the devices, especially if there's cheap cameras. But what they don't realize is some of these embedded systems and default usernames and passwords, you know, if you think about Mirai real fast, there's three defining characteristics. One, it's internet addressable. Two, it had a fixed password, and, and, and three, it was unpatchable or unremediatable. I just described pretty much most medical equipment in hospitals. So this could be a half a million dollar imaging system. It could be a bedside infusion pump for remote maintenance and analytics and remote administration. It's a ton of stuff in manufacturing that you can find on Shodan, you know, with Googleable maintenance passwords that you can't change if you want to. So this idea of breaking things already a bad idea, but especially if it's connected to humans or something that can go boom. You mentioned we were before we kind of started the interview, um, you know, that uh, the specter of uh, Equifax and the Equifax hack uh, hung heavily in the hearing room when you gave your testimony. Obviously, Equifax isn't an IoT security story per se, but um, what impact do you think it might have on um, both uh, the shape of this bill and its uh, chances for passage? Well, I mean, you don't have to squint very hard to see that while it's not an IoT device, it was a known vulnerability that wasn't mitigated, right? Um, It was not only a known vulnerability, it was Struts 2, which is a very popular attack surface and a very ubiquitous and heavily dependent upon project, much like Apache Commons Collections and OpenSSL. So once you, you've heard me say before that once you saw the July 2013 attack on Apache Struts, it took out most banks. Um, That was the heartbleed before anyone knew about it. But from that day on, it was open season on open source, and there were uh, significant uh, action towards these shared attack surfaces instead of attacking bespoke code. Um, so now, if you have a vulnerability in Apache Struts 2 or some of these other you know, highly targeted projects, you better patch right away. So the implications on the bill is whether it's an Equifax this time or an embedded IoT device, if you've got an unmitigated vulnerability, uh, you better be able to patch it. And then part of the impetus for the coordinated disclosure program is you want to find out from good guy hackers well before they're, it's exploited by bad guy hackers. You know, It's all about tightening that loop to avoid, discover, and remediate known vulnerabilities in recognition that they will be attacked quickly. I mean, the idea that uh, WannaCry's patch had been available for a couple months wasn't enough to just simply patch in the clinical environment. The idea that the Apache Struts vulnerability that took out Equifax was had fixes available didn't magically cause them to drop everything and patch that, but tightening that feedback loop from bug discovery through bug remediation, um, you know, is part of the reason it came up. I think it came up three or four times with some venom, some some intensity in our IoT hearing, uh, and certainly a lot before and after the cameras were rolling. Um, it's just one of those things where I think anybody who's compromised by an unpatched Struts vulnerability, it's just the optics are so bad and so rea- radioactive right now that um, it's a special order. I mean, on a technical level, who cares what the project name was when you get popped? Uh, you care about the damage, but right now, politically, <laughs> I pity the company that gets pit, gets hit hard by a, uh, an unmitigated uh, known vulnerability in Struts right now. And I, I, I think that's where it's all going to come down. It's going to be those two words, known vulnerabilities, is, is really going to become the de facto standard of reasonableness. 
You testified alongside U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Software Alliance. Uh, Not everybody, obviously, is interested in or enthused about new laws, regulations of this space. How uh, influential do you think those uh, groups will be in shaping the final legislation? Do you think it uh, will go forward pretty much in its uh, existing form? It's hard to tell, but um, I would say that the difference between this bill and maybe, say, the, the Royce bill from a couple of years ago, the Cyber Supply Chain uh, Management and Transparency Act, was this time it looks like Senator Warner really engaged the Chamber of Commerce and the Software Trade Associations early, well before the draft came out. Um, number two, you know, really consulted NIST, um, NTIA, um, other parts of the federal government, um, and other public-private partnership examples uh, quite a bit. Uh, well, we, should, we think we should work with NTI instead. Well, this stuff reflects some of the NTI work, like the coordinated disclosure work, um, some of the patchability stuff. So a lot of the normal excuses in the protocol of, you know, engaging the private sector uh, teammates has kind of been woven in to the, the meal. Um, so it should be a little easier to swallow. And because this is really a procurement thing versus a regulatory action, um, there's a little less to resist or fight on. So I'm sure they'll try. Mm-hmm. I, you can already see if you watch the testimony, they're nibbling at the edges of, well, we should really define what counts as a connected device, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of arguing that we should take a risk-based approach, which of course you should. The problem is, back to the tragedy of the commons, the, the risk of the use cases around this cheap IoT device that we might be discussing might be low, but the collective opportunity of those took out the internet for a day. You know, they're going to try to define classes or subtypes out of the bill, and they're going to try to buy time going to put a ton of money on this, A, because I don't have a lot, uh, and B, because politics are bizarre to me. But I'm more confident after the hearing that there's some bipartisan support for this. I, I think, um, you know, for a lot of listeners, we tend to ourselves be reluctant to, you know, trust and reluctant to legislate. Um, and I appreciate that. I understand that. Um, the, I think one mature look at this is Actions will be taken outside the U.S. or inside the U.S. They're, they'll do it with or without us. I think what we want to do is participate and have a seat at the table and instead of just being default allergic. So there's some language in here that needs scrutiny. There's some devil in the details that needs to get fleshed out. We're not going to get that to happen during a, a short hearing and a five-minute oral remark, but I'd encourage people to look for what's right in this, not for what's wrong in it. And then we, we should discuss what's wrong, but we should do it as a teammate. Because, like I said, something's going to happen. Um, our role is to make sure that what happens is informed, it's literate, and uh, and that we like the consequences of it. So this is an area for measure twice, cut once, but it's not an area to say no. Um, I think we've got to engage and be the adults in the room that we're nudging this to be as uh, helpful as possible. Joshua Corman, now of PTC, formerly of the Atlantic Council. Thank you so much uh, for coming in and speaking to the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you. 